Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Sam, that was truly wonderful. We have to go on tour together. Uh, I can get, get you to do dramatic readings of Brent Scowcroft's introduction uh, to the book. That would be absolutely wonderful. Thank you very much for having me here today, and thank you for this opportunity to share some ideas uh, on, on this book, and, uh, and not just on this book, but on what's happening around the world and how we find solutions to it. And one of the things that has made it so enjoyable, not just having finished the book and getting that done, because believe me, that is a huge relief, um, but the other part has been to be able to go around the world and talk with people about it. We've been very lucky as we've presented this book in London and had the participation of the British Foreign Minister and in Germany as well, and Rome with the Deputy Foreign Minister, and New Delhi with uh, um, Nobel Laureate R.K. Pachori, and in China where they took the book and translated it. Whether we wanted to or not, I was telling Bob, Jordan, they were translating this book um, in a very wonderful sort of uh, consultative authoritarian way that the Chinese have at times. And, and so um, we've been continuing to learn internationally from talking about these ideas, but we've also been learning domestically as well. And it's critical to be able to hear the questions and the feedback and the thoughts that people have, because in the end, what we're talking about is a critical need to invest in a new international order and in international institutions and make them effective so that we can, in fact, promote peace and security in the world for the next 50 years. And the only way that we are going to do that is if we understand what the interests and the concerns of the American people are and if we're able to talk to our politicians in a way that is convincing to them that helps them understand what the people throughout the country are, are talking about. I want to start out with a quote. Um, When Truman, Aitchison, Kennan, and Marshall sat down to design the architecture of the post-World War II order, their frame of reference was the competition between the great powers that had dominated the 19th and early 20th centuries. In that world, America's greatest threats came from the expansionist states like Nazi Germany or Soviet Russia, which could deploy large armies and powerful arsenals to invade key territories, restrict our access to critical resources, and dictate the terms of trade. That world no longer exists. The growing threat comes primarily from those parts of the world on the margins of the global economy where the international rules of the road have not taken hold, the realm of weak or failing states, arbitrary rule, corruption, and chronic violence, places where the rulers fear globalization will loosen their hold on power, undermine traditional cultures, or displace indigenous institutions. The very interconnectivity that increasingly binds the world together has empowered those who would tear that world down. That's not from my book. Um, that's from The Audacity of Hope and was written by Barack Obama about a year and a half ago. And the reason that I raise it is because there is an individual as the president of the United States who believes that we live in the world that is interconnected. 
where the threats that we face are the threats that cross borders and require us to be able to deal with that very interconnectivity in order to be successful in our national policies and in prosperity. And in a sense, that is what our book is about. How do we govern that kind of a world? When we undertook this project, we were extraordinarily ambitious in the way that we approached it. We literally asked ourselves that question, how do we create the foundations for peace and security for the next 50 years? And as bold as it seemed, we, we thought, if this question had not been asked in the 1930s and the 1940s, we never would have had the United Nations. We never would have had the Bretton Woods system. And despite their, for, their shortcomings, they became the foundations for security that lasted for the next 50 years. And so as we approached this, what we recognized from the outset was that there is no way that the three of us who wrote this book were going to be able to do this just by working on it ourselves. And we needed others to work with who were smarter than we were. And so we reached out and we created a domestic advisory group and an international advisory group. And we had an opportunity to have people like Brent Scowcroft and Rich Armitage and Javier Solana and Madeleine Albright um, and Tom Pickering and Chet Crocker and extraordinary individuals who participated this, uh, on this, but people from all over the world, which began to give us a signal that people sensed that perhaps there was such a need for a new sense of how we govern ourselves that they were willing to give their time on a project like this and advance these ideas. One of the things that became a foundation point for the analysis was the nature of globalization and what it offers us today. And on the positive side, the global access that we have had to capital and ideas and technology and labor has transformed the world. It's lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty in India and China. It created unprecedented wealth. It brought new powers up from positions of absolute poverty. And yet at the same time, we have to think about what is the dark side of this globalization? It's the housing crisis in the richest country in the world that extends itself to a financial crisis that becomes an economic crisis that becomes a world recession. It is the power of industrialization, which has brought goods and commodities to people throughout the world at prices that could never have been anticipated, yet at the same time threatens to put so much carbon into the air that it could undo the very earth that we know. It is the potential of nuclear power that holds forward the possibility of producing energy in carbon-free ways, yet if we don't understand how to govern and rule that nuclear power, it becomes the risk of proliferation that becomes an existential threat to the international community. And so what we have come to see is that increasingly in this transnational world, we have problems that no one nation alone can resolve, no nation can isolate itself from, and it forces us to transform the concept of leadership. No longer is leadership the idea of telling others what to do but it is building the kinds of international partnerships that are necessary to be able to produce results on the kinds of problems and challenges that we face today in the world of economics, in the world of international security, in the world of environmental um, sustainability. 
Now, for those of you from the business community, you're probably looking at me and saying, why is this novel and innovative? If somebody from the business community came and said to you, you know, we came up with this great idea about management. We're going to build teams and have teams that are led, and these teams are going to be cross-sectoral. We're going to have individuals lead these teams, and the concept of leadership is the ability to manage across sectors and conduct matrix management for the purpose of achieving results. You look at me and say, where have you been? And this is where we are today in the world of public policy and governance. We are still managing the world on the basis of institutions and precepts that were developed at the tail end of World War II and still have, have, still remain the basic foundations of the international system and the institutions that we work with today. And so one of the things that we felt that we had to deal with as we began working on this book was the question of sovereignty and how do we explain it and how do we understand it, and hence the quote that Sam read by Brent Scowcroft. If you look at traditional Westphalian sovereignty, it's based on the concept that borders are sacrosanct, that problems can be controlled and kept out. And that is no longer the world that we face today, even with the international financial crisis that we have now where there is a recognition that these problems have to cross borders, that you have no ability to restrict them. When you come back to the point of trying to understand how the institutions we have can operate effectively in this, this environment, we come smack up against the traditional precepts of sovereignty that we've had in the past. And so everybody might agree that it's important for the international system to be able to maintain scrutiny over the financial practices of countries that have large financial balances and major financial systems that can affect global stability. But who wants to be the first one to subject themselves to that kind of scrutiny? Or we have a conflict in Darfur, which Secretary Powell called genocide in 2004, and at a minimum, most of the international community acknowledged as one of the great humanitarian tragedies in the world. And still, still could we manage to figure out the political mechanisms to put on the ground an international force. It took us three years to be able to do that. And so what we have today is an international system that is better than none, can still produce results, and if we ask are there results that are being produced? The answer has to be yes. We have a world where the United Nations is deploying 100,000 peacekeepers throughout the world. And if we look at the total deaths in the world that, um, that have occurred as a result of violent conflict, believe it or not, they have gone down by about 50% in the last 20 years. And much of that has been because of a transformation of international peacekeeping by the United Nations. I would note, as a side, that each, each peacekeeper that the UN puts on the ground costs about an eighth of what it costs of a US soldier. Um, I don't say that as an advertisement. It's actually a tragedy. It's also a miracle. Um, the UN, as in the way it actually deploys its international peacekeepers, it has to recruit them for every individual mission. There is no common training. There is no common doctrine. There is no common co command and control procedure. There is no common intelligence. There is no international lift and support capacity. As I've talked with generals in the U.S. Army and the Air Force and throughout our services, they'd say, under these conditions, the United States would never deploy. And so it begins to show this juxtaposition, the potential for 
possibilities that could be, a better international system that could produce better results, and yet a recognition that the system we have right now was based on foundations and precepts that do not serve us in a world where borders no longer are sacrosanct and where problems no longer respect the boundaries between countries. How do you approach that kind of world? One of the things that we outlined in the book was a proposition of a concept called responsible sovereignty. The concept originally had its foundations by a colleague from the Brookings Institution, Francis Ding, who was there in the 1990s. He was an African scholar and statesman. Um, He developed some of these ideas at a time when he saw the kinds of cross-border conflicts that were developing throughout Africa. And the way that we developed responsible sovereignty was fairly simple. It was that, first of all, that a nation obviously has a responsibility to its people. It has to look at after their security needs, their prosperity, their financial needs. Um, there has to be a foundation for a well-governed state as, um, as any precept for sovereignty. But secondly, there's also a requirement for states to become accountable and responsible for the actions that they take internationally and the actions that they take domestically and how they reverberate across their borders. And indeed, in the world that we live in today, if we are concerned about problems like climate change, where it doesn't matter where that last unit of carbon came from, it still has the same impact and effect on the international environment. The only way that we can, in fact, actually work with others to restrain their behavior is to recognize that we also have to impose restraints on our behavior at times, which is a radical concept in American politics and American foreign policy, and I'll come back to that in a second. And then the third precept of responsibility, uh, of responsible sovereignty was a responsibility to build, that if indeed it is critical to have an international system with responsible states. And I I underscore here, responsible states are not weak states. Responsible states are states that are capable of performing functions domestically and internationally. Then we have to be concerned about those states that don't have the necessary capabilities. And we in the international community need to think about how we build up the capacity of those other countries. Because in the end, if there are gaps in the system, it is those weak states like Afghanistan that became the foundation for the most significant strike that we had on American territory in our history. It is those weak states that can, in fact, be our undoing. Now, one of the things that I've tried to learn over time is that in order to actually communicate some of these ideas, um, I would stop and sit down and discuss these things with my nine-year-old son. And, uh, and so we were having a lesson on responsible sovereignty, and he looks at me and is like, oh, Dad, not again. Um, and uh, so I'm explaining some of these things, and I'm saying, you know, when you have responsible sovereignty, and it's not just doing what you want to do, and you have to take account what other people want to do. And he said, Dad, 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 you know, look, on the playground, if you want other kids to be nice to you, you have to be nice to them. So much for my book, you know. It's <laughs> but he's got a future before him. Now, what does this mean? How do you deal with this? Um, Responsible sovereignty doesn't just mean, then, that you transform the international system. And this is one of the biggest challenges that we had in the book. And what we came back to and what Brent Scowcroft reinforced and Javier Solana reinforced and pretty much most groups reinforced is that, in the end, what we have to return back to is a rule of law for the international system. And it makes sense 
I mean, if we think about what makes us strong at home, it is the rule of law. It's the predictability of our system. It's understanding there, there are specific rules by which individuals will behave, by which corporations will behave, by which our society will regulate its behavior. And why is it that we should not proceed on the same basis internationally? This is not just a novel concept. We obviously have international rules and regulations. The World Trade Organization is an example of that. And what we were trying to do is to recognize that we live now in a world where we need to take the rules that we have and understand them in a way that allows us to function effectively in this kind of transnational world that we were proposing. We were not suggesting that there should be any kind of world government, and in fact, we suggest the opposite. What we focus on was, look, was to look at individual problems like nuclear security, like climate change, like biological security, like conflict, like economic and financial instability, like terrorism. And around these issues, then our challenge becomes, how do we understand what the rules are that need to be negotiated? And when we begin to understand those rules, how do we begin to invest in the institutions that are necessary to be able to perform effectively? There are a number of things that we considered as we looked, looked at this analysis. We asked ourselves the question, do you simply live by coalitions of the willing, bringing together those states that are necessary in order to be able to achieve certain results? And the answer was, you know, coalitions are not a bad thing, but if that's your answer to international order, then you're going to fail. Because in the end, you need to invest in capabilities, and you need to have to rely on those capabilities. And any of you that run a company know that if you don't have residual capacity that you've trained for and you have your, your, your entire system and staff able to, to execute in a moment of crisis, you know that you can't actually respond. And so coalitions of the willing can work, but only in the context of institutions that provide the foundations for stability and being able to deliver the kinds of capacities that one needs on the ground. Now, how do we begin applying this? And let me give a couple of examples um, of how we played this out in the book. And let me just start first with the the global economic and financial crisis. Um, One of the things that we have learned that does not work in a recession is protectionism. We learned that in 1929, and we saw that recession, that protectionism was not only an economic disaster, it was a political disaster because it destroyed the foundations for international cooperation, and it was the destruction of those foundations that became the political impetus for World War II. And so what we face today, and I think this is one of the biggest challenges before our leaders, is to recognize that at a time of economic recession that what we need to do is to expand the markets that we are all working within because it's in the expansion of those markets that we have the pockets of capital and the pockets of growth that begin to make the connections that are necessary to be able to drive us forward. And the more that we narrow those markets, the more that we narrow those possibilities for growth. But that's easy to talk about in principle when it comes to the point of individual representatives of Congress or parliaments throughout the world, they're concerned about constituencies and localities. And the immediate reaction is those individuals at a steel plant who are losing a job or in an automobile plant who are losing a job or at a coal mine who are losing their job and give me protection. And so the demands on our leaders today in this area, I think, are greater than just about any other. Because if we give in to these these pressures of protectionism. The risk is that not only will we not be able to regrow our economy and achieve the foundations for growth in the future, 
it will lead to other aspects of political conflict and contention that will make it so much harder to resolve the other problems in the world that we face today. If we get into a battle of protectionism with China, for example, the immediate impact on American capital will be huge. China has become our banker. But we cannot resolve the problems of climate change today without working with China. We cannot resolve most of the major global security issues today without working with China. It is a different global environment in which we cannot dictate the results. And so one of the things, and if there's any message that I leave you with today in the near term, is a hope that all of you will reinforce this perception in your mind that what, when we approach our leaders, that we recognize the difficulties that they face, but that we underscore that we support them in their efforts to fight against protectionism, to open up global trade, to open up global markets for capital, because this is fundamentally critical for our security in the future. A couple words on climate change. On the one hand, this is a problem that has become absolutely urgent, and most people don't recognize the nature of the urgency because we talk about the impacts in the year 2050. And indeed, the way the question is framed almost almost forces people to actually put it off into, the, into a future which is unreachable and unattainable. Because what the scientists have told us is that we cannot allow the temperature of the planet to increase by more than 2 degrees centigrade by the year 2050. And people sort of think, well, you know, that's a long way, and that's not a big deal. Now, 2 degrees centigrade is a big deal when we come to think of it, and that's translated back to the temperature, to the human body temperature. You know, our normal body temperature is 98.6. If you're at 99.6, you probably don't feel very good. If you're at 100.6, you really don't feel well, very well. If you're at 102.6, you better go to the hospital, all right? the temperature of the planet increases by two degrees centigrade, it will be really sick. And we will begin to see a full-scale implosion of the kinds of impacts that we've seen throughout this region of the United States with shortages of water, with flooding in other parts of the world, with greater um, incidence of disease, um, with complete changes in agricultural productivity, with changes in migration patterns, and a whole series of new global challenges that we have never thought of in the past. Now, why is it urgent today? It's urgent today because the decisions that we make in the infrastructure that we live in are going to create the foundations for the environment that we have for the next 30 years. And if we do not peak, if we do not peak our global emissions by 2015, the curve that we get afterwards in order to bring down those emissions becomes so steep that it becomes so phenomenally economically painful that it becomes almost impossible to do. Now, what does this mean in practical terms? One of the things that we've learned from science is that climate change is caused by the way that we use fuel, by the way we use fossil fuels, and the impact that it has of putting carbon into the environment. And so what the challenges that we faced is that we have to transform the use of fossil fuels in a way that it either doesn't put that carbon in the environment, or we develop renewables that create a whole new foundation for the way that we generate electricity, that we run our vehicles, and in fact achieve economic growth. 
And the only way that we're going to do this and what we've learned throughout human nature is if markets function and if there's a price. One of the things that we've learned is that if we want to stimulate conservation, we have to create a price. If we want to stimulate investment and development of new technology, there has to be a price for it. And so we have to put a price on carbon. And that is one of the big debates that will take place in Washington over the next six months. And I would venture is, in fact, actually going to take place over an even longer period of time. Why is this difficult? When you start asking the question of what happens when you put a price on carbon, well, it has an impact on the competitiveness of carbon-intensive industries. What are they? Coal, steel, aluminum, automobiles, cement, very parts of our economy that are suffering right now. So ask me which politicians in the United States want to raise their hand and say, I volunteer to put some form of price on carbon today, which we know is going to be fundamental to transforming our competitiveness and our survivability in the future, but is going to make a lot, life a lot harder for the people in those parts of the country that are, where those industries are dominant. And that is the challenge that we face today, keeping our eye on the future requirements of transforming the nature of economic growth and the impact that it has on the environment, and yet at the same time addressing the acute challenges and problems that we have today. That's one of the kinds of issues that we address in the book, and what we try to do is to give practical solutions on technological transformation and how we reach agreement on a deal internationally that can begin to disseminate the kind of technology that will make China a different type of energy-consuming country that will make the United States a leader in competitiveness in new technologies, and yet at the same time give us a staged and managed process of putting in place the restrictions on emissions that are necessary and still keep us within scientific timetables. This is one of the hardest problems we face today because it is a direct interaction between science, technology, economics, politics, and international bureaucracy. And in the end, we have to get it right. Because if we don't get it right, then the impact will be devastating for all of us. Let me say a couple of words about the broader Middle East. And uh, Bob, I offer some of these thoughts, and I think that you, you might have some ideas to inject into this conversation as well. Um, the broader Middle East is now recognized as one of the most problematic and sensitive parts of the world, whether it's the Middle East peace process with Israel and, Palestine, and the Palestinians, whether it's Iraq, and now extending it further to Afghanistan and Pakistan. And one of the things that we have not adequately done in our policy up until now, and now there's a major push to move toward the transformation of this, is to understand that sustainable solutions require political foundations. Lakhdar Brahimi, who is one of the best-known and most respected negotiators on peace and conflict throughout the world, um, wrote a report in 2001 for the United Nations and said, you know, the only way that you can have an effective peacekeeping force is if there's a peace to keep, and if you don't have that basic political understanding, you will fail. And one of the things that we have not come to terms with yet is that in Iraq, for example, there is no political settlement. We have U.S. troops, and there have been international troops there on the basis of a Iraqi political environment, but there's no basic deal among Iraqis 
on how they will reach a basic accommodation among themselves on issues that deal with the federalism of the country, how they deal with the sharing of oil revenues throughout the country, how they deal with minority rights, and how they protect um, the rights of minorities in parts of the country that, um, uh, where they may not be a majority. It's these issues today that begin to create the tensions once again in Iraq. For a period of time, not only did we have a massive international force presence there, we had really expensive oil. And when you have really expensive oil and massive energy resources, it's a lot easier to reach compromises because you know what? You don't have to compromise. You move money around. And now is going to be one of the toughest periods. And it's a tough period at a point in time where, for good reasons, U.S. forces are going to be drawn down. And the challenge that we face is not so much a security one, although there is a security factor. It is fundamentally political. And hence the same thing in Afghanistan and in Pakistan. What has not been achieved in the society, these societies is a fundamental political understanding among different ethnic groups, among different leadership groups, that establishes a foundation and basis for leading the country and establishing peace and stability. And until that occurs, international forces can play a critical role in helping to create an environment that starts to secure a peace. But if you don't have a fundamental and basic political understanding in Afghanistan, for example, of how to cut in to the state where narcotics constitute arguably 40 to 60 percent of the gross domestic product, where corruption has become endemic from national government to local governments, where there aren't sufficient security forces to be able to hold and sustain areas, and where the Taliban can come in relatively at will to disrupt. You don't fix that with just more forces. It requires a fundamental political understanding of the role of the state. And that is what we try to lay out in the book of how we need to begin to tackle these problems. It is the kind of problem that Dick Holbrook faces as he is negotiating with the Afghans, with the Pakistanis, and those in the regions on how to create a better course. These challenges are huge. If we had our druthers, we would begin to say, you know, we need to pick one of these one at a time and begin to actually deal with them as the capacity allows. But that's not what the world has given us. We have a world today with a whole series of international crises. Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, the Middle East peace process, North Korea. We have a whole series of geopolitical challenges in front of us. Rising China and India, a recalcitrant Russia, um, Latin America that has generally been ignored by the United States and it's rising and we haven't been sufficiently engaged in that rise. We have a whole series of geopolitical challenges that we face, like climate change, like the international financial crisis, like transnational terrorism, like nuclear proliferation. And we ask ourselves the question, which one of these do we ignore? None. We can't. And that brings us back to where I started. In the world that we live in today, the only way we can lead the only way we can seek succeed is through international cooperation. This is not a new idealism. These are not fanciful, fanciful ideas of how the world might be prettier and nicer. This has become the new realism, the new realism that if we want to succeed in the world today, 
we have to be able to create the rules, the institutions, the will to engage in that international system and to work with other partners because we cannot do it alone, they cannot do it alone, and we cannot isolate ourselves from it. And on a positive note, one of the things that we found as we went around the world was that everywhere we went, there was a call for this. There was a call for international cooperation, and there was a call for American leadership in this direction. There is a recognition that if the United States does not lead and does not lead in a way that helps build these partnerships, we cannot succeed. So we have a huge opportunity, one where the American people, I think, increasingly recognize that we want partners in the world, that we want to be respected as a country, we want to create foundations for stability and security, and we have a global society that recognizes, even on the part of those who would not have wished the United States well, that a hurt United States is worse than a strong United States, and that we now need to find a new form of international cooperation that takes us forward and really can create peace and stability in the world for the next 50 years and decades beyond that. Thanks very much. We'll now uh, take questions. I have a first question, however. <laughs> the kind of responsible sovereignty that uh, you and your group are advocating uh, seems to have most resistance on the parts of those uh, weaker states, um, former uh, states that were colonies of the metropolitan powers, they are the most covetous of their sovereignty, whether it is responsible or not, as, for example, in Darfur. Uh, the uh, African states through the AU are supporting uh, the resistance uh, to uh, international cooperation of the kind that you're suggesting. In Zimbabwe also, it's very difficult to mobilize other African states to intrude into the sovereignty of Zimbabwe. Afghanistan, Pakistan. Uh, very recalcitrant, very uh, um, capable of generating nationalistic responses to what the United States regards as essential to do in the name of responsible sovereignty. How do you bring along those states, those weaker states, whose cooperation will be necessary in order to deal with the problems that you've outlined? Um, you, you, you've just been uninvited from the road tour. <laughs> um, in, uh, these are indeed the hard cases, Sam, and uh, it's good that you raise them. Um, let me give a, a couple of examples, and let's start with Africa. Um, difficult as this has been in Africa, interestingly enough, this concept of responsible sovereignty actually is part of the African Union Charter. And if you look at today's African Union in comparison with the old organization of African unity, these are radically different entities. We're now in the African Union, you're starting to see responsible African leaders who are trying to provoke a debate. And the case of Zimbabwe is an interesting one because on the surface it seemed like an absolute failure. It was a failure because many African leaders, and in particular with the protection of South Africa, were not sufficiently willing to challenge President Mugabe, who actually had destroyed his country. Yet at the same time, what we began to see was that other African countries were quietly putting pressure on Thabo Mbeki, the president of South Africa, and saying these negotiations cannot be stopped. 
And it was as a result of that pressure that the negotiations continued, that African states kept saying that we cannot let this stop here and we actually need to maintain our own scrutiny and pressure on these recalcitrant leaders. Zimbabwe isn't fixed. It is still a huge and serious problem. But the fact that there is a unity government right now and this was not allowed to stand was in part a reflection of some of these African states actually being willing to make those efforts. The other day I heard on NPR an interview with somebody from the World Food Program who is in Burma. And he was talking about the difficulties having of getting into Burma and the resistance that came from the state. And eventually what began to happen was that quietly through ASEAN that there were leaders who came back and kept putting pressure on Burma. Um, China began to have quiet conversations with Burmese leadership and said, we cannot allow this humanitarian tragedy to prevail. And eventually the Burmese started to let in international organizations. And it's fascinating now the way in which the World Food Program and other international groups are being able to establish some degree of presence there. There are huge problems still in the international system. North Korea is probably one of the most intransigent ones. Iran is another one. But what we've seen is increasingly that states recognize that stability in their neighbors matters to them. And as a result of that, they have become increasingly willing to get involved in their neighborhood, not that different from what we experience in our own communities. And so the answer is in part to begin to talk to self-interest. Um, states aren't going to do this because they simply just think it's a good thing to do. They do it because of the self-interest of the refugees flowing out of Zimbabwe into the rest of southern Africa, of the refugees flowing out of Myanmar into the other overcrowded and potentially unstable states surrounding them. It is those self-interests that are going to get states eventually to act. But the other part of it that we have to recognize on our part is that the international community has to be able to prepare itself for this and that we have to engage major powers and actors in a way that makes them sensitive to this changing international environment. And so the last point that I'll, I'll make on this is, goes back to China and the point that I made about the translation of, of this book into Chinese. There's a debate going on in China right now. And there are some who recognize that the reason that China is where it is today, that it has achieved the economic growth that it has, that it has become a power, is because China has been engaged in the, in the, in the global order. It has become part of that process of globalization, not because China has isolated itself. And so there are those who are trying to understand how does China play in that future global international system. And they recognize that if they're going to be part of the system, they have a stake in defining the rules of the game, not just simply being a taker. And up to now, China has not been in that position. They've essentially been a free rider on the international system. But if they want to benefit in the future, they're too big to just sit back and watch it. They have to be part of that system. And so these are the dynamics that we have to get into play, to get major powers to recognize that they have to have a stake in the system, that they have to help define the rules of that system, that that system has to be stable and predictable for it to be able to function, and for those countries that are concerned about instability in their neighborhood, that they start taking a role and responsibility on what might happen to their neighbors, because in the end, we've all come to recognize that neighbors are the first responders. They're the ones who are immediately there, and if they don't have a stake in these problems, it's very hard to get the rest of the world to take a stake in them as well. 
you uh, give a credit to the United Nations peacekeeping for the last 20 years of decreasing violence. Uh, with, I can think of a two dozen peacekeeping missions, a couple of them have been out there more than 60 years, several more, more than 50 years. Isn't there a one-to-one -one correlation between the decrease in violence with the decline of the Soviet Union communism? Um, no, in fact, it, some would argue that it's actually gone the other, other direction. And the interesting thing, and I you know, say this on, as somebody who spent uh, uh, 15 years working on the former Soviet Union and the, the impact that it had as it broke up, um, there were a huge number of tensions in the world that were suppressed as a result of, of the Cold War. Uh, we had our friends and they had our friends. And we both imposed a certain degree of order and stability as a result of that. And when the Cold War ended, one of the things it began to do is it lifted a lid on those conflicts. And those conflicts became more intense and more wars actually broke out. And that's one of the reasons why there are more peacekeeping missions is because there were more peace agreements and there were more international forces that were then required to actually help enforce the peace. But that doesn't mean that it works well. And Congo is one of the good examples. Um, you know, Congo is one of the most unstable places in the world. On the one hand, you would say, thank God that the United Nations is there because no one else is paying attention to it. We're not paying attention to it. The Europeans aren't paying attention to it. They did for a short period of time. There was an important EU mission that went there at a critical stage to help, put, um, help stabilize the situation. There are 17,000 troops in Congo. This place is huge. And if we think about how those troops are equipped, why should we be surprised that there's still instability there? But the flip side of the equation is that at least it has provided some foundation or framework to be able to dampen down the level of conflict and to reduce the, imp the impetus of individual actors to act on their own. So it, I, I do not in any way want to suggest that the United Nations and UN peacekeeping is a panacea. And in fact, there are many cases in the, the, for example, Cyprus. I mean, the reason that you've had international forces in Cyprus for such a long period of time is we don't have a political agreement. And one of the things that there is a real temptation on the part of the international community to do is when it can't actually work out the tough political issues is to try to deal with them by putting in forces. Um, we should know that. We, we've done that in Iraq. Right? And, and so the challenge that we still face is how, to face, is how to come back to that fundamental reality. Unless there is a political understanding among parties, it is extraordinarily difficult to sustain peace and stability. And that is one of the huge problems that we face on the international community today, of how to be able to create the impetus for peace and to create political understandings that are sustainable over time. Jim. Thank you on behalf of the Tower Center for such a thought-provoking uh, <coughs> lecture about American foreign policy. You mentioned Latin America, and you said that we have not paid sufficient attention to Latin America in our foreign policy. Uh, given the, uh, the problems that you went through here and the difficulties we all have in prioritizing, you know, how, how do we bring Latin America up on the American foreign policy agenda? <laughs> Jim, that's a, a, a very good question. And uh, um, one of the things that um, Brookings had not had a program on Latin America for a long period of time. And over the last two years, we went through an extensive process of, of building up that program. 
I'm sure that's the Latin America director right now telling me that he fully concurs with uh, our analysis of <laughs> the increased investment that we've been putting into the region and the potential it has for the future. Um, we, um, we began uh, about a year and a half ago to uh, establish Latin America Initiative. We have a new director of it. The head of it is an individual named Mauricio Cárdenas. Uh, Mauricio was uh, director, uh, minister of planning and uh, minister of transportation in Colombia. Uh, has a PhD from Berkeley. He's fluent in sort of fluent in the region and both systems, and is a tremendous individual to lead it up. In beginning this initiative, one of the things that we did was we put together a commission that involved um, ten Latin American leaders, ten leaders from the United States, and went through an intense period of study and and um, and analysis of what some of the key problems are. One of the things that came out of that and is important for the United States to understand and recognize is part of what I said. Latin America is a region that has taken off. And it has taken off with the United States not always fully engaged. And if we want to be part of that process of growth, we have to engage differently. I think one of the things that you saw President Obama trying to demonstrate was the use of this concept and word partnership and to indicate that there is a real power and strength of what Brazil and Mexico are doing despite the problems that these countries face. The other is that we have to recognize that the problems that are faced out of Latin America are real transnational issues that group us all together. And the only way that we're going to face them is to look at them as a bundle of questions in which we have to be intimately engaged. The questions of immigration, of drugs, of guns, of violence are not just things that you can isolate in one place. They cut across countries and an entire region. They have demand centers in different locations, and we have to address all parts of this equation. We have to address the demand sides. We have to address the supply side, and we have to address the transit side. And depending on whether you're looking at people or guns or drugs, the demand centers and the transit issues um, are going to be different. And so one of the things that we tried to do honestly in this report is to put some of the big questions that are out there and, how, and the problems that we need to face. And on drugs, for example, to really ask the issue of how do we deal with the demand side of the equation here in the United States just as much as we're also looking at the incentives for production in individual countries and how do you provide alternative livelihoods. You have to look at it systemically like that. The other thing that we tried to really underscore is that there are areas of real opportunity, and one of those is energy development and climate change. And we have not had adequate cooperation with a part of the world that is a critical supplier to American energy needs, but at the same time, it's part of the world where there's a lot of sun. And, you know, and if we have a capacity to work more effectively on alternative technologies like solar and wind, that there is a huge potential benefit here um, throughout the region, but in particular for some of the poor countries of Central America and in, in the Caribbean, especially if we can find ways that provide energy and electricity that are not infrastructure intensive, that can be broken apart and decentralized. Huge business opportunities there if we can do that kind of thing. So these are the kinds of things that we've tried to lay out in the report and give practical policy suggestions that we can begin to pick up. Um, I haven't said much about Cuba, which was another part of the report, and I'm glad to come back to that. It's a pet peeve of mine. We're going to see a depopulation war. And we're all wars in some extent. Depopulation. Prosperity that caused World War II related to depopulation. 
Um, the, the question, as I, as I understood it, was um, whether there are tendencies and trends toward depopulation which are going to create new sets of tensions and security challenges that we face across regions and across countries. Is, am I getting the general gist right of, of what you're suggesting? Problems the problems we have today, are they related to resource-population relationship? I see, and the relationship to resources. Um, I'm, I'm, what's going through my mind is, uh, you know, the, the countries with uh, big population issues, right? And how do we think about those places? You know, let's start with India, right? Um, this is a place where population is still burgeoning, and they have huge natural resource constraints, um, huge shortages of energy, um, massive infrastructure deficit. And so India, on the one hand, is probably facing still a great um, tremendous pressures to be able to educate its population about birth control and to limit the incentives for population growth. Um, China continues to grow in population at 1.3 billion um, despite extreme measures that have been taken in controlling that population. Uh, China also faces huge natural resource constraints, particularly on the energy side. Right now, they supply 70% of their electricity through coal, and that's not a sustainable proposition for them from an environmental perspective. Um, Russia is on a complete flip side. The population of Russia has gone from about 150 million, I think it may be at 140 million, 138 million today, and it's continuing to decrease as a result of HIV/AIDS, of alcoholism, and just poorly, just generally poor health throughout the country. Yet it's at the same time a country that has huge natural resources and wealth that have not been adequately exploited. Um, I, I'm raising these examples because in, in some ways they, um, they are some of the big population centers going up or down in the world and some of the places that have um, huge natural resources deficits or surpluses. And there isn't a consistency in pattern here. And, and so I'm not sure what the pattern is. The logic would begin to tell us that as a result of natural resource deficits, that that is going to create pressure for population growth restraint. That would be logical. Um, that isn't necessarily happening in some parts of the world. And so the question it poses is, as a result of that, are we going to see greater conflicts over scarce resources in certain areas? Um, that, I think, is the case, and we already see it in some places. And let me put that example, then, in the Sahel, where the competition that you have over land and water has already become acute. Darfur, in a sense, is a climate change war. It's a war over land and water and access to those resources because the po it can't hold the populations that it has. Um, so in some, I guess what I would say is that the trends and pattern that one would expect to see of restrictions and resources would lead to restrictions in population growth. We haven't seen that in some of the big places today. Should it give us a cause for worry or concern? Probably because there probably will be greater competition over land, water, energy resources at some point in time. Um, thank you for an excellent presentation. Uh, you're sort of at 30,000 feet on some of these things, and the thing that I have on my mind, and I don't know about the rest of the room this morning, is Pakistan with the Taliban 60 miles out of Islamabad, 
and us not being very clear on where the nuclear weapons are. I mean, maybe they're to the south of Islamabad and the Taliban isn't coming into them, but maybe they're somewhere else. Could you comment on that? And what would, advice would you give President Obama right now? If you were? Um, Pakistan presents, uh, I think, one of the biggest international security challenges that we face today. Uh, a colleague of ours from the Brookings Institution, Bruce Rydell, um, has written a number of times that Pakistan is the most dangerous country in the world because of the combination of international terrorism, um, narcotics, organized crime, um, conflicts on its borders, and nuclear weapons at the same time. Um, it is a place that we need not only to watch seriously, but engage with seriously. The answers on Pakistan um, are elusive, and um, we know what elements of a strategy need to be. We haven't been able to quite figure out how to make them function in a way that um, is as compelling as we would like. Um, and I'll give you some examples on this. Um, first of all, I think we would all recognize that Pakistan would be better off if there was better governance in the state and there was a political will to control corruption. Um, there was a hope that President Zardari would be willing to do that when he came into office. Increasingly, the reports that we hear out of Pakistan are that the habits of the past of seeking corruptions on major deals, even at a, t even at a time when the country is so fragile, um, have continued. And so as a result of that, the general credibility of the government with the population has decreased. It hasn't increased. And Nawaz Sharif, whose popularity had been pretty much in the ditch before, has now risen again to be seen as a shining knight and a prospect of the future. Yet at the same time, in his own record as prime minister in the past, um, did not have a sterling record of governance. Um, so the prospects for national governance are not strong. Um, there is no doubt that a solution in Pakistan is going to have to address the instability and insecurity in the tribal areas. And here you have an Afghan Taliban and a Pakistani Taliban, as well as al-Qaeda. And al-Qaeda pretty much operates there without any kind of constraint and control. And so the question then one begins to ask is, how do you get control over this kind of an environment where you have an Afghan Taliban moving into Afghanistan but still extending its influence into Pakistan, a Pakistani Taliban that increasingly has been able to function in other parts of the country, um, uh, and, and al-Qaeda, which has is, is essentially been unchecked. The difficulty is that there is no security presence. You know, one of the things that has almost become a pop culture about counter, excuse me, about counterinsurgency is that it can't be a military solution alone. It has to bring together a military capability and a capacity to provide effective administration to deliver jobs and services and, and, um, and health care. Um, you ask that question in the tribal areas of Pakistan, and no one has an immediate answer. There are six divisions of frontier troops um, that have basically been in their barracks and have been ineffective. The current strategy is to be able to train those troops and to be able to send them back and to be able to fight an insurgency. Maybe it'll work. I, I personally don't think it's, it will. 
Um, earlier today, um, I was talking with Von DeFeelba Brown, who um, will, she might want to say some more things about this. She was just recently in Afghanistan. Um, one of um, one of the difficulties that we saw in Afghanistan and Iraq, particularly with the training of the police, is that individuals were trained from, poli- um, from police forces and then set back to their units. Uh, what happened when you put 10 trained individuals in the midst of 30 others who were corrupt? Well, they all became corrupt again. And so that's why training in, for the police in Iraq and Afghanistan failed year after year. And what we've learned is that the only way you succeed is if you take entire units and train them together on how they operate, and you also train the entire system that gives guidance to those units. We don't have a strategy to be able to do that. Some have suggested that the way to deal with Pakistan is then that you need potentially regular Pakistani forces to be able to do that. There there are problems with that. The biggest one is um, Pakistan and India. And Pakistan continuously feels that its biggest threat to its international security is on the Indian border. And it is not going to, at the present time, move troops from that border and put them into, um, into the western parts of Pakistan to fight an insurgency. Um, and so what we, we've seen is that not only do you have not, not have security, but if you don't have security, then you start providing resources to be able to deal with education and with health care and job creation. And who does it? And, and I, I, I hate actually giving um, uh, answers like this that don't have um, a very constructive solution. And I don't have a very constructive set of solutions. I think that there's some things that we know that we need. To, there has to be a capacity to reestablish some basis for security in the tribal areas of Pakistan. It has to happen. And so the first thing that we have to do is to work through all of those options and how realistically can you do it in, a near term, in the near term. The second set of questions is how do you begin to demonstrate um, to Pakistanis that there is a real commitment to engage with them and to, to be able to help them have a viable and functioning society? Um, there are going to be short-term answers to that, and the longer-term questions are going to depend on the viable functioning of the Pakistani state. This is not a, a very simple solution, and it's one of the reasons why it does need a special envoy, why it needs the attention of the President of the United States, why it needs the attention of the Secretary of State, but frankly why it also needs the attention of the international community because this is not going to be solved in a year or two years. It's going to need sustained international engagement and involvement for a decade, and that's, what we have to fa- that's the way we have to face up to it if we even have a chance of finding some of these solutions. Teacher. Thank you. you. You very eloquently started your presentation off talking about the post-World War II development of international institutions, primarily Bretton Woods and the Marshall Plan. And in a 20th century model, that was a relatively easy structure because you were working with two predominant powers, Europe and the U.S. Fast forward to the 21st century where you say clear leadership cooperation across the globe needs to happen. My question is twofold. From a leadership perspective, you've already said that the U.S. is expected, although humility will have to be a part of that regard, to lead. But in your, in, from your perspective, who should lead with us? You mentioned China. And then the second part of my question is there's been some talk about a league of democracies. If that is the case, then what role would a group like China play in a league of democracies? Very good question. Um, let me start with the last one. Um, we address the question of a league of democracies. Some call it a concert of democracies in the book. Um, we do not advocate it. 
um, and we think it would be counterproductive. Um, China is actually a good starting point for that. Um, if one recognizes that you need China to be able to solve any of the major problems that we have today, our own financial crisis, trade issues, climate change issues, energy issues, regional security issues in Asia, and we're basically advocating an international order where China is out, we automatically are proposing a, a recipe for governance of the international system which is based on conflict, and it, I, I will not succeed. And so that doesn't mean that democracy is irrelevant to American foreign policy. I think it has to be a central – democracy and human rights need to be a central element of American foreign policy. But the question that we have to ask ourselves is, if democracy is fundamentally about the people of a country making a choice about their future, what are the steps that are necessary for democracy to succeed from within? And how do we engage with states to both – um, with those states, politically increase the political space to be able to support um, emerging democratic institutions? And how do we work on directly engaging those emerging democratic institutions to give them support? So I, I would not go the League of Democracies route. I think it could be problematic and will not get us the results that we need. Um, I would also underscore that um, as we went around the world and discussed this with countries that um, there was not a country in the world that actually disagreed with us, um, and uh, uh, including all of the major democracies. Um, now, the other question on, on who leads and, and how to lead, um, this is a great challenge and is one that we are facing right now and, in, and in fact, is a bit of a mess. Um, the positive side is that what we saw with the G20 Economic Forum in Washington that took place in November and then again in London in April there is a recognition that the old G8 simply was inadequate to be able to address and govern the major problems of the world. Um, China, again, was a major factor. India was a factor. Brazil, Mexico, South Africa, um, some of the countries that became absolutely critical to this, this equation. One of the problems is that the group has actually grown a little bit too big. It's not a G20 anymore. It's actually a G24. And if you can count the regional and international organizations, it's become a G28. And so many have become to feel that it has started to be dysfunctional. But what it does begin to raise is that should there be an alternative forum that has groupings of major powers in the world that become a mechanism for leaders to provide guidance and achieve some alignment of direction on the major problems that we need to address today. Um, this doesn't mean that those leaders become the decision makers on all of these issues, but rather if you can get an alignment among those leaders, it provides the capacity to then give instruction and guidance on how issues can be taken up elsewhere. And so if you can get the G20 leaders to come to some consensus on international regulatory issues, economic stimulus issues, then you have a basis of having a more productive discussion in the context of the IMF and the Financial Stability Board. If you can get leaders to come to basic guidance on technology dissemination and emissions reductions, you then have a basis of a more constructive discussion in the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. If you can get a better set of discussions, for example, on how to deal with questions of disarmament, civilian nuclear power, and tighter controls over nuclear, um, nuclear programs, then you have a better chance of going back to the Nonproliferation Treaty and the NPT review process and coming up with a better set of solutions when the NPT is, re, uh, is readdressed in May of 2010. 
And that's what we've tried to advocate in this book, the creation. We call for a G16. Believe me, there's no right number. We've sat there with spreadsheets, and we've looked at different weights and variables, and you can't come up with the right answer. But what we've basically advocated is that you start with a G8, that you take these five other countries that have been centrally involved in political discussions, um, China, India, Brazil, Mexico, and South Africa, that you add, at a minimum, one major Muslim majority state, Indonesia. Uh, Turkey is a good candidate because of its bridging role between Europe and the Middle East. There's generally a recognition that there needs to be more African representation. There's generally a recognition that you need an Arab state, and we can get into a huge debate of which one of those states it should actually be. But what we need to figure out is how to make that grouping more effective and how to explain the dynamic between that grouping and the international institutions. Because in the end, the international, the G20 don't carry out programs. They, they make declarations. They give guidance. Institutions actually carry them out. And if we don't have that linkage between the two, then we don't get success. Um, before I give up the microphone, um, I wanted just to save to the end a, a thank you to the sponsors of, of this talk today. Um, to the World Affairs Council and Jim, uh, I just want to express a great thanks and appreciation for being willing to sponsor this dialogue. It's amazing that you brought this group of people together, that you, all of you are willing to have this serious discussion about issues that really are affecting our world today and are going to continue to affect our world for decades. The kind of World Affairs Council that you've built up here is a true model. I've only had a glimpse of it, but the membership that you have, the seriousness of participation, is certainly something that others should envy. Um, the Tower Center, we consider sort of a, a kin brother in this part of, of the world, um, where we believe at the Brookings Institution that um, it is absolutely critical to have nonpartisan approach to the tackling of major international problems. And I, and I stress that word, nonpartisan, because I think one of the things that we have to fundamentally believe in is that we can't start with what's the Democratic answer and what's the Republican answer. We have to start out with asking, what's the problem? What are the options? What works? And how do we translate that into policy? And if you want to put a Democratic label or Republican label on it later on, well, that's going to happen in the real world. But we need more places like the Tower Center that are committed to that kind of nonpartisan analysis, which is driven by the assessment of what problems are and how to come to solutions. CM, Jim, thank you for co-sponsoring um, and bringing me here uh, to both of you, the Tower Center and the World Affairs Council. I'm really indebted for this opportunity to have this discussion. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.